0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett.
1: Welcome to the program. In our second segment today, we will speak with Steve Freeman. He's currently a visiting scholar at the University of Pennsylvania's Center for Organizational Dynamics and is the recent author of... Was the 2004 presidential election stolen? Exit polls, election fraud, and the official count. In this program, we've been dealing with the issue of election chicanery in the U.S. and past several election cycles for many, actually years at this point. And Dr. Freeman uh, is someone we've been trying to get on this program for some time. He's been part of a larger group that's looked at uh, both of the uh, most recent U.S. presidential elections and found that, uh, well... There's some cause for doubt about the official results. Let's put it that way. We'll speak with Dr. Freeman and Chris Hedges of the New York Times in our second segment. We spoke with Chris Hedges a few weeks back about his book, American Fascists, the Christian Right, and the War on America. We'll speak with him today a bit about his essay in Feet to the Fire, the media after September 11th, Top Journalists Speak Out, edited by Christina Borgeson. Mr. Hedges had some surprising things to say in that essay, and we will speak with him about those things in segment two. Let us begin the programs we like to do with On This Date in History. On this date, which is May 10th in 1927, the Hotel Statler in Boston, Massachusetts, installs headsets in 1,300 rooms. It was the first time a hotel offered broadcasts from radio stations. On May 10th 1933, Nazi Chancellor Adolf Hitler staged massive public book burnings across Germany. On this date in 1984, the International Court of Justice in The Hague, Netherlands, ruled that America should cease military action against the Sandinista government of Nicaragua. Of course, the U.S. government declined to go go along with the International Court of Justice, which led up to the Iran-Contra scandal, which plagued the last couple years of the Reagan-Bush administration, which brought the American public such entertainment as Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North, not known for dressing up in his military uniform while he was at the White House, appearing before the cameras in his full... uh, Full military regalia, stating that he would stand in the corner on his head if the commander-in-chief told him to do so. Regrettably, such orders from President Reagan never came down. And in music history, on May 10, 1954, the American group Bill Haley and the Comets released Rock Around the Clock. Considered to be the first rock and roll number to top the charts, the song started out slowly but became a hit when it was used in the movie the Blackboard Jungle. Our quote of the day comes from George W. Bush, alleged by many to be the actual bona fide President of the United States. Who blasted Congress last week for setting a timetable for the withdrawal of troops from our fiasco in Iraq? Said Bush, the question is who ought to make that decision, the Congress or the commanders? And as you know, my position is clear I'm the commander guy. This has led to an editing of the official White House transcript by people in the administration who are now claiming that what Bush actually said was I'm a commander guy. Which, of course, is much better. He's a uniter, not a divider. He's the decider, and he's either the commander guy or a commander guy. And we have to be frank about it. If ordered we to stand in the corner on our head by this commander in chief, we would refuse. But uh, no word from Ollie North on that one. Our quip of the day comes from William James, who said common sense and a sense of humor are the same thing, moving at different speeds. A sense of humor is just common sense, dancing. Our statistic of the day comes from France, which just this week elected a new conservative president. Apparently no one has a more negative view of the French than the French themselves. According to a recent poll by the International Herald Tribune, 44% of French men and women say they hold a negative view of the French. This compares to 38% of Americans who hold the French in low esteem, 25% of Italians, 29% of Spaniards, 14% of Germans, and 33% of Britons. We've decided here at Radio Parallax that we kind of like the French. We certainly think when it comes to Iraq, the French government deserves a lot more credit than the British, who didn't seem to uh, manage to avoid getting entangled with us in that uh, swamp in the Middle East. Our joke of the day comes from AmazingJokes.com, which noted recently that uh, there's many reasons to think that prison is better than work. Some of the reasons, in prison you spend the majority of your time in a 10 by 10 cell. At work you spend the majority of your time in an 8 by 8 cubicle. In prison, you get three meals a day. At work you get a break for one meal, but you have to pay for it. In prison, good behavior earns you time off. At work, good behavior earns you more work. In prison, they allow your family and friends to visit you. (laughs) At work, they do not allow your family and friends to visit you. And finally, in prison, you can watch TV and play games. Whereas at work, you can get fired for watching TV and playing games. All right, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, last week was a good week for New Jersey Governor John Corzine, who was released from the hospital after breaking multiple bones and nearly dying in a crash in which his official SUV was racing through traffic at 91 miles per hour. Said Corzine, I hope the state will forgive me and I'll work very hard to set the right kind of example. Corzine described himself as a blessed human being. But the magazine reports it was also a bad week this week for New Jersey Governor John Corzine after reporters clocked the SUV carrying him home from the hospital at 70 miles an hour, 15 miles an hour above the posted speed limit. And it was surely an ugly week last week for the honors system in academia when it was revealed that Merrilee Jones, dean of admissions at MIT, resigned after acknowledging that she had fabricated her educational credentials. When she first applied for a post at MIT in 1979, Jones falsely claimed to have degrees from New York's Renslauer Polytechnic Institute, Union College, and Albany Medical College. Marilee Jones evidently never <coughs> corrected the record as she moved up the ranks of academia. Jones won national acclaim for her campaign urging high school students not to stress themselves out building up impressive resumes for college. All right, that's the good, the bad, and the ugly. All right, here's an item from the Only in America file. Apparently, Don Larson, a district chairman in the Utah County Republican Party, has submitted a resolution to the party's annual convention suggesting that illegal immigration is, quote, Satan's plan to destroy the U.S. by stealth invasion, unquote. Larson's bill calls for the U.S. border to be sealed immediately to thwart the Prince of Darkness's plan for a new world order as predicted in the scriptures. And from the definitely not in America file, we have the following. German demographers announced last week a 30% spike in the number of children being born exactly nine months after the World Cup finals took place in Germany. (laughs) Explained Dr. Rolf Klitsch, during the World Cup, emotions run high. And apparently they do. And in a surprising news item from south of the border, Mexico City's Legislative Assembly last week passed a bill legalizing abortion in the first 12 weeks of pregnancy. This is the first in Mexico. Women's health advocates say the law, which applies only within Mexico's city limits, could serve as a template for the rest of the country, whose population of 107 million is overwhelmingly Roman Catholic. Government officials say about 200,000 illegal abortions are performed in Mexico every year and complications from illegal abortions are the third leading cause of death for pregnant women in the capital city. We at Radio Parallax find this to be encouraging news from Mexico. Uh, A somewhat less encouraging story from the Mexican capital. It was noted that two days ago, more than 18,000 people stripped naked and bared it all in Mexico's vast main square, the Zócalo. This was for U.S. photographer Spencer Tunick's biggest nude shoot. The Brooklyn, New York artist has become famous for photographing thousands of naked people in public settings worldwide, from London and Vienna to Buenos Aires and Buffalo, New York. Reportedly, his previous best turnout had been 7,000 models in Barcelona in 2003, But this Mexico City shoot has dwarfed all of the others. Said participant Oscar Roman Munoz, a 25-year-old engineer, the important thing is not that it's your body or someone else's, but that you participate in something as a society. This reflects the need for change and integration in world trends. Yeah, but actually it is sad to note that in Mexico City, uh, they're moving forward progressively to, to make abortion legal and available to women who need it, thus uh, saving the lives potentially of 1,500 women who die from the complications of illegal abortion. Contrasting that to here in the U.S., where Bush-appointed Justices Sam Alito and Chief Justice John Roberts have, uh, have now given the court what appears to be a 5-4 f- to four majority capable of overturning Roe versus Wade. Of course, that fifth vote all comes down now to Anthony Kennedy, former McGeorge professor of law, who seems to be the mystery man on the Supreme Court. Kennedy was both a part of that uh, five to four judicial coup d'etat that stopped the 2000 election vote count in Florida and that recent dreadful decision regarding eminent domain, which says that if the government wants to tear down your house and build a Walmart, eh, well, has the right to do so. It's funny. We here at Radio Paradox have tried to get numerous uh, McGeorge people to come on this show and talk a little bit about Anthony Kennedy, and we just can't seem to get any takers. I wonder why. And in other uh, legal news, we did want to note, at least in passing, uh, the good news out of Duke University when uh, three lacrosse players, wrongly accused by an aggressive prosecutor of rape, saw charges dropped. And, and their names cleared, along with that of the university, in what is really a sordid episode of, uh, of prosecutorial aggression. Interesting that there's one unsung hero, at least in the case, apparently uh, a cab driver, Mosaldin Emostafa, a Sudanese immigrant who is a taxi cab driver, told the truth uh, about the fact that one of the players accused had been in his cab that night and was nowhere near the house where a sexual assault had allegedly occurred. As soon as the Durham, uh, North Carolina cabbie became a key alibi witness, his attorney said he fell victim to the district attorney, Michael B. Nifong's rough and tumble tactics. He was arrested. Apparently more than two and a half years before, El Mostafa had taken a woman in a cab to a department store and waited for her, then drove her away from the store. She would later plead guilty to shoplifting five purses valued at $250. El Mostafa was accused of aiding and abetting misdemeanor larceny. His attorney said he had no idea what she was doing inside the store. A former security officer at the store testified that after the woman got into his cab, he sped away before the woman could even close the door. But a surveillance tape showed the cab did not start moving until the door was closed. A judge acquitted him. Anyway, it's nice to know that another subplot in in this case of criminal justice gone awry uh, turned out okay in the end wish you could say the same about the Cinco de Mayo rally that took place in L.A. Uh, on Saturday, wherein uh, baton-wielding LAPD apparently went through the crowd whacking various newsmen and, and roughing them up and ensuring that they move along, get into their uh, vans and shut the door and thus stop filming. The LAPD apologized for its behavior. Anyone with press credentials should be allowed to cover an event. That's why you get press credentials, let alone standing there with a microphone in your hand and a camera crew photographing you. We will uh, continue to follow that story. In a somewhat lighter judicial matter, we would note uh, the news coming from New Delhi, where a court issued arrest warrants for Hollywood actor Richard Gere and Bollywood star Shipla Shetty last Thursday, saying their kisses at a public function, quote, "...transgressed all limits of vulgarity," unquote. Judge Dinesh Gupta issued the warrants in the northwest city of Jaipur after a local citizen filed a complaint judging that the public display of affection between the actors offended local sensibilities. Gupta apparently uh, viewed some earlier television footage of the April 15th event, which he called, quote, "...highly sexually erotic," unquote, saying the pair violated India's strict public obscenity laws. The Press Trust of India news agency <laughs> quoted the judges saying that Gare and Shetty transgressed all limits of vulgarity and had the tendency to corrupt the society. Gear apparently left India shortly after the kissing incident, and it was not immediately clear how the warrant would affect him. His publicist, Alan Nirob, said there would be no comment from the actor. Now, I, I've not seen this particular video, but Mr. Merlin, I gather that you did see it on YouTube. But Did you think this was a vulgar display? Oh, I don't know. Well, there you go. And uh, let's round off this segment with some, some news from around the world. Apparently, Paul Wolfowitz, the embattled World Bank president, is under growing international pressure to resign. Wolfowitz was appointed uh, World Bank president as a promotion for the fine work he did at the Pentagon in starting up the Iraq War. Uh, Mr. Wolfowitz uh, apparently arranged two substantial pay raises for his girlfriend and has now hired high-powered lawyer Bob Bennett, the man who defended Bill Clinton against sexual harassment charges, to, uh, to keep him out of hot water. And we're not entirely pleased to report that uh, Cuban President Fidel Castro uh, has defied all of these rumors about his being on death's door to last week resume some of his official duties. He evidently met last week with a delegation from China. Photographs in Grandma, the government-run newspaper, showed a smiling Castro shaking hands with Chinese Politburo member Wu Guangzheng. Castro evidently did not make a public appearance during uh, May Day ceremonies, however. A Spanish physician who examined Castro last year said he's suffering from diverticulitis, an inflammation of the bowel which was corrected by surgery. And uh, in other news from what used to be called behind the Iron Curtain, we have word that the Kremlin has been making steady progress in taking control of the Russian media. The press in Russia had enjoyed a degree of independence in the post-Soviet era, but at least 50% of domestic news carried by the Russian news service, the country's largest radio news network, must now be positive, and opposition leaders cannot be mentioned. And final item for the segment, in an election that would uh, do the former communist bloc proud, voters in the Sacramento area decided to... uh, to assess themselves higher property taxes in order to pay for more, quote, flood control, unquote. This, of course, has the potential now of allowing Angelo Sacapolos and other prominent Sacramento area developers to continue to put homes and businesses in floodplains where no sensible person would place such buildings. Let's take a break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. In a moment we'll return to talk with Steve Freeman about uh, exit polling and election fraud in America. In a moment we'll return to Dr. Steve Freeman to talk about exit polls and election fraud here in U.S. of A. Dr. Steve Freeman has a PhD in organization studies from MIT's Sloan School of Management. He's a visiting scholar at the University of Pennsylvania Center for Organizational Dynamics, where he teaches research methods and survey design, a domain that includes polling. He has received four national awards for best research paper of the year on four different topics in three different fields. More recently, Dr. Freeman authored Was the 2004 Presidential Election Stolen? Exit Polls, Election Fraud, and the official count we 've been looking forward to having one radio parallax for some time. We could finally say, dr. Steve Freeman, welcome to radio parallax it 's great to be here we 've been covering on this show uh, this issue of computers, election fraud, and what has happened in some recent presidential elections. You and a number of people have written some papers about that can we can we backtrack a little bit to where what what uh, what you 've done in the past
2: yeah, the book really centers on the two thousand and four election. Um, the two thousand election just to remind listeners was you know, we have no evidence that that election had dramatically flawed results throughout the country, but um, in the state in which the election was decided, Florida, there was just one travesty against democracy after another. In 2001, first there was uh, voters being scrubbed off the rolls. I mean, at the first point, really, that is, is probably worth making to people is that in Florida and several other states in the country mostly in the former Confederacy felons are disenfranchised for life that means anybody who's committed sometimes sometimes even just a small use of recreational drugs can result in a felony and people lose the right to vote for life and that, it may not sound like a big deal to have felons disenfranchised but as it turns out it's 7% it, of the Florida voting age population. And one third of all African American males are legally disenfranchised. That not being enough in the 2000 election, an additional 80,000 people were illegally scrubbed from the voting rolls because they happened to have the same name as somebody who committed a felony somewhere in the country. Well over 50% of those were African Americans who had voted Democrat over 9 to 1. So there were those things. In addition to that, there's much evidence of a corrupted count throughout the state, and then just uh, a stopping of the count in the end. There were ballots that were probably intentionally misdesigned, and all told, even despite all the problems with vote suppression and people being illegally knocked off the rolls, had the votes been counted as cast, Gore would have won that election quite easily, well over 20,000 votes which is a story that has hardly been reported, but that is a fact, and it's really an indisputable fact.
1: We reported on it here and hope to continue to do so because uh, George Bush still is president.
2: Well, yes, he still is filling that office.
1: (laughs) Can you talk about 2002 before we did a 2004? Because there were some discrepancies there as well.
2: There were some shocking results in 2002. Uh, 2002 saw the introduction of electronic voting. Now, electronic voting, finally, people are becoming more aware of it, but it's, I mean, the mere fact that this electronic voting exists is an indictment of the system. Basically, what happens is you go into a voting machine, you push a button, something happens within a million lines of proprietary code, and a vote gets recorded or not. And it may not be, or it may get recorded for uh, uh, a candidate other than whom you voted for. And we have no way of knowing. A way to think about this, in India, in the early days of democracy, when there was still, well, there still is a caste system, but a lot of resistance on the part of the upper castes to a democratically elected government. And what would happen in many of the villages is, that the Brahmins didn't let the untouchables, the lowest caste, actually cast a vote. Rather, they would have the untouchable tell them who they wanted to vote for, and they would secretly record this vote. And, of course, we can see the problems with that system. (laughs) The Brahmin may not have heard the untouchable correctly, or he may have made a mistake, or he may have had different interests and, and wrote that vote down differently. Basically, we're in a situation in this country where 99% of the American population is being treated as an untouchable. We have no way of knowing how those votes are. It's trivially easy for these companies to produce whatever results they want, and we don't know what's happened. And there's no way to go back and look at it either because there's no paper trail. And even when we have incredibly suspect results, nobody's been willing to allow those machines to get opened up and examined. In 2002, the introduction of electronic voting, there were five big surprise Republican victories that allowed them to retake control of the Senate and win a couple of governor's races that were just astounding because in Georgia, for example, the first state that went completely electronic, the Democratic governor was ahead by over 11 percentage points in the polls, and he subsequently lost by five. Uh, The senator in that state... Max Cleland, triple amputee, decorated war hero, was accused of being non-patriotic by his Republican adversary, despite being ahead by seven percentage points in the polls, lost by five. So we saw these kind of things around the country, those just being only two of the most extreme.
1: As a, as a scientist like, specializing in, uh, in, in computers and how things are counted, these swings of 12% or 15%, this exceeds what we saw in, in the Ukrainian fraudulent election. This is something that's uh, statistically a million to one shot, is it not?
2: Right. It was just incredibly ironic, November 2004, that at the same time, there was an exit poll discrepancy in the Ukraine, halfway around the world, it was treated as evidence of a fraudulent election. And the Republican, Republican uh, ambassadors there, members of the State Department and Senator Richard Luger, head of the Foreign Relations Committee, were there saying, saying as such that the exit polls, exit polls prove fraud. Deputy Secretary of State testified that they paid for those exit polls in order to ascertain the integrity of the election, saying that otherwise it's very difficult to prove mass-scale fraud. We had an election here of almost identical proportions. In both cases, an incumbent won the official count by a few percentage points and lost the exit polls by several percentage points. There it's treated as fraud. Here at the same time, they're saying it's evidence of fraud there. Uh, The chairman of the Republican National Committee is saying, well, we shouldn't even have exit polls in the future because they just don't work. But in fact, they have been used for purposes of election verification throughout the world. Till 1980, the worry about exit polls was that they were too accurate in terms of allowing the press to, to know who won the election before the polls actually closed. And believe me, since 1980, exit polls, technology and methodologies have not gotten worse, but like any other technical procedure, they've gotten considerably better over time.
1: Well, Dr. Freeman, things have not gotten much better. It sounds like in 2006 election, you you have a current letter out requesting that the U.S. House of Representatives investigate what's going on in Florida. What's what's that all about?
2: In Florida, in one case, the more famous one in Sarasota, there are 18,000 missing votes, again, using electronic voting machines. In this particular race, there are four counties. The three Republican counties had approximately 2% of voters abstaining from the from the congressional race in the one democratic county in the congressional district sarasota eighteen percent of voters supposedly did not cast a vote for for congress Um, despite had had they voted in the same proportions as other people in the county the democrat would have won that seat Um, we can through calculations infer based on the precincts in which the votes are missing that had those votes been counted the democrat would be seated so even under these circumstances the judges there have refused to allow inspection of the voting machines so we're asking we've asked the house administration committee to look into it that's one one race that race they have accepted they so far have seemed to have turned down several other races one of which is a race with tom feeney who He came to national fame in 2000 when he declared that he was going to award the seats. He was Speaker of the House of Representatives, the Florida House of Representatives, in in November 2000. And he declared that regardless of how Floridians voted, he was going to award the electoral votes to George Bush. Subsequently, there have been allegations of him, including a signed affidavit and testimony before Congress, that he approached a computer consulting firm in South Florida to develop technology that would allow the votes to be altered. In his race, the challenger has been suspect of the results, and he went in some precincts door-to-door asking voters to sign a d- affidavit who they voted for. And in many of these precincts, there have been more people signing affidavits saying that, he, that they voted for him then there are votes on his behalf, which, of course, is an impossibility. So we've asked uh, Congress to look into that. So far, they have declined.
1: Is this definitive at this point, or is there still a possibility they will look into it?
2: I'm not sure of the procedures there. Um, I I don't know. It looks as though they're not going to look into it, at least the House administration committee that has jurisdiction over it. But, you know, we'll keep pressing on this issue. It's... uh, It's just astounding. Basically, what we have is a system where elections have been privatized, and basically we're not electing our representatives any more evil than the other voting companies are. And even under these very suspect circumstances, courts and Congress themselves have been unwilling to, to challenge that arrangement
1: well it's an important issue the two thousand and eight election is eighteen months away. We hope that you can come back in a few months and give us some updates as to how things are proceeding in this area to try and uh, get more accurate voting counts
2: well we're certainly doing our best We, uh, we do urge the, your listeners to get involved this is This is one issue that you cannot trust uh, trust the politicians to take care of that there is no way to evidence there's no way to change the system without a mass public showing of disapproval for the system, because incumbents are happy with the system as is. It basically ensures they can, they can get reelected no matter what. So we do ask that your listeners look at our website, electionintegrity.org, read my book or some of my papers, which are on the web, to become more familiar with, with what has been happening as far as democracy goes in America. And uh, to whatever degree possible, please get involved.
1: Very good. His most recent book was The 2004 Presidential Election Stolen, Exit Polls, Election Fraud, and The Official Count. We've been speaking with Dr. Steve Freeman, and we expect to have him back on again. Thanks very much for speaking with us, Dr. Freeman. When we spoke with Chris Hedges of the New York Times a few weeks back about his book, American Fascists, we had a couple of questions left over regarding his essay that appeared in Christina Borgeson's book, Feet to the Fire, the media after September 11th. In his essay titled, We're Not Mother Teresa's, Chris Hedges had some startling things to say about what he observed in the Middle East. Can you reiterate uh, what you witnessed and documented for Harper's Magazine uh, for the, their October 2001 issue in regards to the, um, what you saw Israeli troops do to the Gaza refugees at, uh, at, at the camp?
0: Yes. I was uh, spent 10 days, along with the uh, graphic artist and cartoonist Joe Sacco, chronicling life in uh, probably one of the most depressing refugee camps in Gaza called Yunus. And the first day that we got there, the, the, it is the, the, the camp was surrounded at the time by a horseshoe-shaped fence. And on the other side of the fence was um, a Jewish settlement. You could look through the fence and see the lawns and the people with the lawnmowers and the sprinklers. Meanwhile, those in the camps didn't have running water. Um, and oftentimes, from the other side of the electric fence, uh, Israeli soldiers with loudspeakers on their jeeps would... Uh, in Arabic, taunt and curse kids who would be playing in the sand dunes, um, you know, using swear words. And and, uh, these kids would then pick up rocks and start throwing them towards these jeeps. Uh, We're talking about 10, 11, 12-year-old boys. And the Israeli soldiers would fire upon those kids. Uh, This was an almost daily occurrence when I was there. And, uh, of course, when I first heard about it, uh, I, I went to the edge of the camp and watched it. I watched it se- uh, over several more days, Yet, these young kids being shot. You know, I listened to the uh, uh, soldiers uh, over the loudspeaker on the jeep scream to the kids in Arabic, tal, tal, which means come, or, you know, Ibn which is a curse word in Arabic and this kind of stuff. And, um, and then I would, after the kids were shot, I went to the hospitals to visit them, uh, or in a few cases went to their funerals. Um, and was very careful about getting, you know, the dates, times, names, locations, uh, where they were wounded, uh, and put this in my story, and of course uh, caused quite a stir. I was attacked roundly by the Israeli lobby in the United States who did things like claim that I wasn't there. When they tried to do that on television, we got the Harper's lawyer to threaten to sue them, and they printed a retraction. I mean, But it was really a form of character assassination. Um, they never disputed because they couldn't. Uh, the events, because the fact is, it was too well reported. I, I had the, the, you know, the days these, the days and times these kids were shot, their names, you know, where the wounds were. It was the, the I think it was in the details of the reporting um, that uh, was so unassailable, and so they turned to that old trick of essentially defaming the person who wrote it.
1: Well, the U.S. government, of course, has a very pro-Israeli foreign policy. Can you talk just a bit about how? how the Bush administration's foreign policy has really blended with the agenda of, of the Israeli right wing.
0: Very much so. But, you know, they're, they're, the Israeli right wing in power in Israel is in many ways the mirror image of the Bush administration. There's been built an alliance between Messianic Christians and the radical Christian right, and Messianic Jews uh, in Israel who and in the United States who believe that they have been given either a moral or divine right to control the lives of the Arab world and and perhaps one-fifth of the world's population who are Muslim. And that has built this strange alliance between members of the Christian right who come out of a long tradition of anti-Semitism but have seen in this marriage of convenience the right to reshape the Middle East according to their own twisted vision. And that, of course, is uh, a major contributing factor to the war in Iraq. It, It led to the Bush administration's support for this disastrous Uh, and brutal uh, and inexcusable bombing of Lebanon by Israel uh, and, of course, is one of the engines that is propelling us towards uh, striking Iran.
1: Chris Hedges has been a foreign correspondent for 17 years. He joined the staff of the New York Times in 1990 and previously worked for the Dallas Morning News, the Christian Science Monitor, and National Public Radio his book American Fascists The Christian Right and the War in America uh, was something he spoke with us recently about we thank you for rejoining us in the program Chris Hedges Thank you You're listening to Radio Parallax I'm Douglas Everett Let's take a short break
2: It's that's Oh, what? I'm not It's it's that's easy.
1: are back uh, let's do some science in this our final segment today and uh, what better way to start than with some follow-up on our uh, discussion of the melamine that's turned up in pet food and for this we'd like to thank one of our regular listeners apparently mike who works here at uc davis's california animal health and food safety laboratory system We mentioned last week we would hope that someone would email us uh, that knew about what was going on with this situation and thankfully uh, Mike, an analytical chemist, uh, has done so. So I think I will just read uh, from this email. This whole thing started with reports from veterinarians that cats and dogs were getting ill and dying of renal failure shortly after eating particular pet foods. A number of labs around the country started receiving suspect food samples and testing them for the typical things known to cause renal failure in animals. Stuff like ethylene glycol, oxalates, and a few other chemicals. Ethylene glycol, of course, is radiator fluid. The foods were negative for these. The FDA was also working on these samples and had found out that problems had started shortly after the pet food manufacturers had begun using a new source of wheat gluten in the pet food. Gluten, of course, is uh, that substance in wheat that makes it doughy and sticky. I understand it was added to various gravies in in pet foods. Uh, Mike goes on that one of the food labs in New York, which had received samples from Cornell's veterinary diagnostic lab, announced they'd found the compound aminopterin in a couple of food samples. But no other lab had been able to confirm its presence in any other suspect food sample. What other labs did find was high levels of the compound melamine. Melamine is mostly used in the production of plastic for dinnerware. At first, no one paid a whole lot of attention to this, as melamine is not thought to be particularly toxic. In fact, an article by Deb Collars in the Sacramento Bee quoted Dr. Michael Payne, a UC Davis toxicologist, as noting that in the grand scheme of chemicals... Melamine is 15 to 35 times less toxic than caffeine on a pound-for-pound basis. Mike Fledder goes on, The FDA was able to determine that the suspect wheat gluten contained extremely high levels of melamine, several percentage in some samples. Cat food contained levels as high as several tenths of a percent. Soon became apparent that virtually every suspect pet food sample contained melamine while other pet foods did not. Our lab also started testing urine from cats and dogs that had fallen ill with renal problems and found significant levels of melamine. When, uh, when other brands of cat and dog food uh, made the pets sick that did not contain uh, sus- the, um, the wheat gluten, the FDA was able to determine that these pet foods contained rice protein that had been imported from China, which also contained high levels of melamine, as well as the related compound cyanuric acid. Those pet foods were subsequently recalled, but of course it didn't end there. It's apparently a common practice for pet food companies to sweep up scraps from the manufacturing process and sell it off for pig food. That's exactly what happened to some of the food containing the contaminated rice protein. He goes on to note that uh, there's a farm in the Central Valley that uh, apparently sold off whole pigs. And uh, samples from that farm were, were taken and found to be positive for melamine, thus confirming the entry of the contaminated protein into the human food supply. Mike notes, at that point, things here at the lab became very, very busy. And it turns out that uh, this food had been sold to hog farms in other states. The feds made the decision to depopulate the hog, so that ended the problem until it became known that some chicken farms had also received contaminated feed and that people had already eaten those chickens. Since the levels of melamine in chicken meat would be likely very low, and since most people don't eat huge amounts of chicken, it's unlikely melamine would have caused any human illness. But the ramifications of an industrial compound like melamine getting into the human food supply, being contamination in imported ingredients are, of course, huge. As we mentioned in last week's program, uh, apparently the culprit behind this is the fact that the Chinese get a higher price for their wheat gluten depending on its protein content. And if you add melamine to the feed, it boosts the nitrogen level, which artificially indicates that it has more protein than it really does and makes it more valuable. David Barboza and Alexei Barrio Nuevo, writing in the New York Times, noted that in Zhangqi, a fast growing industrial city southeast of Beijing, Two animal feed producers explained in great detail how they purchase low-grade wheat, corn, soybean, and other proteins, and then mix in small portions of nitrogen-rich melamine scrap, whose chemical properties help the feed register at an inflated protein level. Melamine is the new scam of choice, they say, because urea, another nitrogen-rich chemical, is illegal for use in pig and poultry feed and can be easily detected in China as well as the United States. Said the manager of an animal feed factory, people use melamine scrap to boost nitrogen levels for the tests. If you add it in small quantities, it won't hurt the animals. Well, apparently they were wrong about that. Returning to Mike's, uh, Mike's letter, he noted what, uh, what killed these animals. There's not a lot of melamine data out there, so no one's really sure that it isn't the culprit, but it doesn't seem likely. One possibility is that some melamine-related compounds, like cyanuric acid, that have also been found in the gluten and rice protein, are the real toxins, or that they are combining with the melamine to form a more toxic compound. There are a lot of people working on this issue, and it will be interesting to see what they come up with. Well, it certainly will, and we will continue to follow this story as it unfolds, and we hope, uh, Mike, that you will again uh, write us and keep us informed of what the California Animal Health and Food Safety Laboratory System uh, is coming up with. It's really very gratifying for us to note here at Radio Parallax is that as we reach more and more people, that uh, you know we can count on your expertise to educate us and thus every other listener about uh, what you know about. I've heard Dr. Bill Wattenberg uh, on KGO Radio note many times that well, I don't know the answer to that, but you know what? Someone out there listening does, and we want them to call in so we can learn from you. Well, right, let's do some science. According to The Economist magazine, April 14th issue, gut bacteria may help to explain why a Spartan diet increases lifespan. Noted in the magazine, it's now generally accepted that eating less makes animals live longer. That's been demonstrated in creatures ranging from worms to mammals. Exactly why it should be so remains, however, hotly debated. So Jeremy Nicholson of Imperial College London and his colleagues set out to shed some light on the matter, and their results were published in the Journal of Proteome Research. You know, and, and I'm glad The Economist reprinted this because, you know, I let my subscription to the Journal of Proteome Research lapse. But at any rate, the question posed is, does eating less result in a lower metabolic rate? And the preliminary answer from this research indicates that perhaps in dogs anyway, uh, yes, apparently it does. Dogs were fed uh, diets of different uh, caloric content and their urine was checked for certain uh, compounds to see what they might learn. One thing they looked at was creatine, which I believe is favored by a lot of weightlifters to supposedly give themselves added uh, energy. Creatine does indeed help supply energy uh, to muscles. Uh, checking on checking these dogs and the various diets, they found out that the dogs that were well-fed had more creatine in their urine than their calorie-deprived counterparts. Thus, evidently, the dieting dog's muscles were less active, and their overall metabolism had, in other words, been depressed. Next, they looked at compounds called aliphatic amines, which uh, incidentally give urine its pungent aroma. Uh, These are made when bacteria munch on a chemical called choline, a part of an animal's food. Uh, Choline is essential for metabolizing fat, but dogs cannot synthesize it themselves. These aliphatic amines were used as an indicator of how much choline these dogs were absorbing from their gut. It turns out, in fact, that choline is made available for absorption from the intestine by the activities of gut bacteria, something that dogs have and which we certainly have. The dogs in the restricted diet had lower levels of these amines in their urine, indicating that they were, uh, you know, absorbing less choline. And since you have to, uh, you know, you need the choline to absorb the fats, it indicates they were absorbing less fat as well. Again, acting as a check on the metabolic rate. So what's the punchline to all this? Well, the apparent drop in choline levels was much greater than could be accounted for by the relative lack of food. So Dr. Nicholson suspects that the restricted diet was also causing the composition of the dog's gut flora, flora meaning the different uh, types of bacteria present, to change in a way that did not favor choline-munching bugs. This offers an intriguing echo to a study we mentioned on this show a few months ago by Jeffrey Gordon at Washington University in St. Louis, who showed that putting obese people on a diet changes the mix of their gut bacteria. In in that human study, the consequences uh, that they found were a change in the metabolism of, of carbohydrates rather than fats, and the human study didn't imply any direct link with longevity, like Dr. Nicholson's work uh, does here with with dogs, but the parallel is intriguing and does offer us another incentive to cut down on our calories if we want to live long. Anyway, that one took a while to get through, but I think it's worth it because, uh, you know, the one thing that we know, guaranteed, can extend lifespan no matter which species you're talking about is caloric restriction. Think about it. And uh, New Scientist magazine... April 7th issue had an article we wanted to tell you about, uh, talking about a new dangerous pandemic. Only in this case, they're not talking about human disease, they're talking about a disease of wheat. Article by Deborah McKenzie starts out quoting the father of the Green Revolution, Nobel laureate Norman Borlaug, who said, "...this thing has immense potential for social and human destruction." Note to the magazine, an infection is coming and almost no one has heard about it. This infection isn't going to give you flu or TB. In fact, it isn't interested in you at all. It's after the wheat plants that feed more people than any other single food source on the planet. The disease is UG99, a virulent strain of black stem rust fungus discovered in Uganda in 1999. Now, since the Green Revolution in the 60s, farmers everywhere have grown wheat varieties that resist stem rust. But apparently, UG99 has evolved to take advantage of those varieties, and almost no wheat crops anywhere are resistant to it. Magazine notes, black stem rust itself is nothing new. It's been a major blight on wheat production since the rise of agriculture, and the Romans even prayed to a stem rust god, Robigus. It can reduce a field of ripening grain to a dead, tangled mass, and vast outbreaks regularly used to rip through wheat regions. The last to hit the North American breadbasket in 1954 wiped out 40% of the crop. Naturally, of course, in the Cold War, both the U.S. and the Soviet Union stockpiled stem rust spores as a biologic weapon. Apparently, this uh, UG-99 strain has uh, gotten out of Africa. Spores blew across uh, the Red Sea into Yemen and north into Sudan. And scientists who attract similar airborne spores in this part of the world say it will now blow into Egypt, Turkey, and the Middle East, and then on to India. We've talked in the past about uh, biodiversity and the need to have different different genetic strains out there. And this is an example, uh, again, of how important that can be. Luckily for the world, Norman Borlaug is still alive and still on the case at age 93. He's looking to the long term noting that eventually scientists will have to create wheat with a wide spectrum of resistances. The genes may be hiding in other grasses and and grains. For now, says Borlaug, we have to rely on fungicides, wheat breeding, and luck. We're moving as fast as we can, but we started three years too late. We'd better have some good luck. Governments think this is small and local, but these things can build up. And I'm quite positive that someone here within our listening uh, sphere... uh, knows something about this. And please, please, wherever you are, feel free to send us what you know at info at radioparallax.com. And uh, as summer approaches and we're out at night more, out in in our warm uh, California weather, you might want to try this great parlor trick. Visit www.heavens-above.com and find out when there's going to be the next iridium flare coming to our area. Now, uh, back in the 1980s, there was a plan to bring satellite uh, radio phones to the whole world by putting 77 satellites in a polar orbit around the Earth, meaning they go over the North and South Poles and basically then cover all parts of the Earth. These various satellites were going to allow us to always have something above us for which to bounce signals off of. Well, the whole iridium thing went through cutbacks and not enough people wanted to buy phones that were expensive you could use in Africa. And... And the whole thing kind of, uh, you know, virtually fell apart. These 66 satellites put up at a cost of $6 billion were sold to a private investors group for $25 million. The U.S. Department of Defense now became uh, their main uh, customer. What's fascinating about these satellites are that they have these great uh, antenna panels of covered aluminum that basically are giant mirrors in the sky. And if you pick the right time, they will flare up lasting up to 20 seconds with a magnitude of... Negative 9. That's somewhere between the brightness of Venus, which is pretty impressive in your western sky, and that of the full moon. I saw one of these by accident uh, last summer, and they are impressive. Anyway, they're kind of cool to see, and they they do come on a regular basis, so look it up on the web. See if you can go out and see the next one to make an appearance. That would, again, be at www.heavens-above.com. All right, let us uh, us go out with some uh, notable obituaries. Last week, Wally Schirra passed away, one of the original Mercury 7 astronauts. Wally Schirra was, in fact, the only of uh, NASA's astronauts to fly on all of the original three uh, programs that were headed toward the moon, Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo. Schirra had been a Navy combat pilot in the Korean War and later a test pilot. He was the third American to orbit the Earth when he lifted off of Cape Canaveral Uh, on his Mercury spacecraft in October of 1962. He later took part in the first rendezvous between two spacecraft, that in December 1965, flying on Gemini 6, which came within inches of the Gemini 7 spacecraft carrying uh, Frank Borman and James Lovell. On his final mission, Wally Chirot commanded Apollo 7, the first manned mission in the Apollo program. Shirra left NASA in July of 1969 to become president of a financial company. He also worked occasionally on CBS news broadcasts, sometimes paired with Walter Cronkite. Noted for his frankness and sense of humor, uh, Shira uh, admitted that uh, space missions were hardly all glamour. He told the Associated Press in 1981, mostly it's lousy out there. It's a hostile environment. It's trying to kill you. The outside temperature goes from minus 450 to plus 300 degrees. You sit in a flying thermos bottle. And apparently while he was orbiting the Earth, uh, a, fellow, a fellow astronaut, uh, Deke Slayton, asked him, are you a turtle? Which I guess, according to uh, military tradition, you're required to answer, you bet your sweet ass I am, or else you have to buy the round of drinks. Aware that the entire world was listening to the broadcast when Slayton asked him, are you a turtle?, he switched off the, the intercom, recorded his reply, and then presented it to Slayton back on Earth so he didn't have to buy the round of drinks. Apparently, President Kennedy heard about the incident uh, and, uh, and asked Shira during a White House reception the same question, are you a turtle? At which point, Shira felt free to answer him as he was supposed to. And we're sad to note the passing of Tommy Newsom, the former backup band leader on The Tonight Show, whose Mr. Excitement nickname was a running joke for Johnny Carson. Tommy Newsom, a saxophone player, joined The Tonight Show in 1962 and rose from band member to assistant music director. When uh, Doc Severinsen was out playing engagements, which he frequently was, uh, Tommy Newsom uh, stood in to be the uh, substitute band director. This inevitably earned him a place in Carson's monologue where they would play off his reputation for being a rather mild-mannered individual. It's really sad to contemplate that Johnny Carson's Tonight Show has been gone now 15 years because uh, I can remember so well Uh, Tommy Newsom standing there with his low-key personality in his uh, his rather drab suits in contrast to Doc Severinsen's uh, flashy stylings. Chris, you have to be certain that anyone working in, like, the Tonight Show band couldn't have been all that drab. Apparently not long after the Johnny Carson era ended, back in 1992, Tommy Newsom remarked that his image as an ordinary guy was, quote, fairly accurate compared to Rambo. And, of course, this allows us to go out of today's show using the excellent theme song from The Tonight Show. Written, by the way, by Mr. Paul Anka. Our thanks to guest Chris Hedges of the New York Times as well as Steve Freeman from the University of Pennsylvania's Center for Organizational Dynamics. We uh, hope to have them both on the show at some future date. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week at the same time.